Good luck editing that on bonus episode four <laughs> of the Tipsy Tolstoy podcast bonus episode. Welcome to it. Is that the intro? It it, it could be. <laughs> I don't think it should be. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> gentle suggestion. Uh, <laughs> um. Welcome to the Tipsy Tolstoy bonus episode number four. We've got uh, quite a fun show for you here today. I am Matt Karasimovich. And I'm Cameron Lalana. And Cameron is planning on spending some period of time, unknown to us, uh, ranting about 1984 for part of this uh, bonus episode. And then presumably will ask me some questions. And that'll be our bonus episode. <laughs> It's going to be more exciting than that, I promise. Um, I, have, I, I came up with 20 questions for Matt. He has no idea what they are. Uh, we're going to treat this as kind of a rapid-fire interview. I'm going to ask that Matt gives me no context beyond what is immediately needed to answer the question. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to some of these questions to see what you say. I am too. Before we totally get into it, we just wanted to share that our Patreon tiers have somewhat recently been uh, revamped to include more perks, more fun stuff that you can get as listeners. So if you're interested in supporting our podcast even further uh, than just listening, you can go ahead and head over to patreon.com slash tipsy Tolstoy. Uh, so I wanted to kick off this episode with a bit of a rant. Do it. And initially, I was going to include this in our We Part 2 episode as kind of the context, which we did not include in the episode itself because we had so much to talk about for the actual analysis. But I think I, I wanted to say it somewhere because in the first episode, we dumped on 1984 a fair bit. Yes. And I wanted to come out and say, I don't, I don't, I can't speak for Matt, but I don't think either you or I really hate 1984 or George Orwell. No, just people who read 1984 and talk about it on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Um, but okay, so here's my 1984 rant. And I say this as someone who's a genuine fan of George Orwell. Mm -hmm. 1984 and tangentially Animal Farm... <laughs> is not George Orwell's most interesting writing. Mm -hmm. It is not his best book. It is not his most interesting analysis of politics. It's, okay, so if you want to read interesting Orwell, uh, read Homage to Catalonia. A fun fact, so here's a fun fact about Orwell. People don't often know that Orwell himself was a social democrat. In short, he was a fairly mild socialist. However, he did believe in that deeply enough that he went and fought in the Spanish Civil War. And if you're not familiar, the Spanish Civil War took place in the mid-1930s between the Spanish Republicans and the Spanish Phalangists, or the fascist forces of General Franco. However, what's not often known is that the Spanish Republic, as it's often called, actually collapsed really early on in the conflict. And the majority of the conflict was actually fought by communist and anarchist militias. George Orwell actually went to Spain to fight in a communist militia called the uh, Workers' Party for Marxist Unification. Uh, so he was an actual Marxist paramilitary at one point in his life. Uh, and it's part of that experience actually fighting for a, a, a an organization which was backed by the USSR because, um, fun fact about the Spanish Civil War, uh, the only faction which supported the Spanish Republicans against the fascists was the USSR. France and the UK did not take a side, although they did often intentionally not help the Repo Republicans. Fun fact, uh, although the U.S. officially banned any 
any support of either side in the Spanish Civil War. The CEO of Texaco in the 1930s, his name escapes me, but he was, um, I believe, he was a Nordic guy, uh, Torquil Reber. He actually um, basically single-handedly supported the fascist war effort because he supplied almost 100% of their oil, something that which the U.S. actually caught and fined him for, but never stopped him from doing. So in practice, the ban on any intervention in the Spanish Civil War was actually a ban on the helping of Republicans, and in fact, an explicit support supporting of the fascist or phalangist war effort. Fun little fact. Uh, <laughs> super fun. Super fun stuff. Yeah. Super fun. <laughs> General Franco could not have come to power without American support. Oops again. <laughs> Oops, we did it again. Yes, although there were a number of Americans, French and British, who actually went to fight in the Spanish Civil War in uh, so-called Lincoln brigades. There were a number of, at least that's what the Americans were called when they were put into, uh, into brigades. Uh, however, when they returned to the U.S., they were often... Uh, thoroughly harassed by the FBI, and in fact, many of them went on to join the war effort in World War II. However, they were classified as quote-unquote premature anti-fascists by the <laughs> FBI and were intentionally held back from advancing through the ranks, even though that they had seen the fascist threat far earlier than everyone else. Mm-hmm. Fun little facts. Yeah. Anyway, side note, you should go read Spain in Our Hearts by Adam Hochschild because it's thoroughly... Everything Adam Hochschild writes is, is fantastic. He's an amazing journalist, but uh, Spain in Our Hearts is particularly just... Mm, Mm-mm-mm. Mm-mm-mm. chef's kiss virtual chef's kiss over the podcast yeah so orwell himself was not an anti-socialist he was a actual militant socialist mm. so when he's writing 1984 in animal farm he's not writing against socialism per se he's writing against uh stalinism and some might extend that as far as to say leninism itself which i'll, I'll mention in a bit and that's what i mean when i say it's not his most interesting writing because homage to catalonia is just a better book than these two 1984 is just a ripoff of we and animal farm is like a children's tale on a little bit of meth <laughs> um so that's just a better book and it's even if you want to talk about the relationship between power and violence there are more interesting works by yeah. Orwell himself yeah. on this very subject. I mean, so there's a short story called Shooting an Elephant, and I'm not going to go into it here, although maybe one day we'll talk about it. Who knows? It's one of my favorite short stories. That is a way more interesting exploration of the relationship between power and violence than is covered in the entirety of either 1984 or Animal Farm. They're just not that interesting to me. Uh, I mean, even Orwell's book, The Clergyman's Daughter, which is kind of a proto-1984, if you kind of follow the structure. That is a book that Horwell himself hated. It is not a well-liked book. It is not a book you will see anywhere recommended in terms of Orwell's reading. To me, that was infinitely more interesting. It was better written. It just was more nuanced. Everything about it was more engaging than 1984 was. I don't hate 1984 or Orwell, but I just hate the place it has gained in our society for being yeah frankly one yeah. of his more mediocre works i just think like dystopian fiction is a little bit of a reductive um exploration of issues because people apply their preconceived notions of whatever you're about to talk about and they're gonna mold whatever you're talking about onto what they want yeah exactly it's just you know it's not that honestly i don't think it's that interesting of a genre i think we is interesting in the context of the time it's written I think if you were to read it without the historical backing, it's like probably not that interesting of a book, though. Yeah, no, I can completely see yep. where you're coming from. Yeah, so point one, in terms of dystopian fiction, it's 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 not Orwell's most interesting work. He has far more interesting work on the same subject, which is just better and more engaging. Point number two, 
if we must make this comparison, and as Matt has aptly pointed out, we don't necessarily have to, uh, dystopian fiction is not the best genre in general. No. <laughs> um, but if we must make this comparison of everyone loves to talk about 1984 and Brave New World, Brave New World is the better book. It has more literary value. I'm not apologetic about that. It's just more interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even if we want to talk about just in the American context, because 1984 is standard reading, it is not the most appropriate dystopian book for the American context. If you want to know the most appropriate book for the most for the American context, that would be It Can't Happen Here by Sinclair Lewis. That is a far more grounded and realistic look at how fascism might take place in America, and it happened way earlier than 1984. It happened in the 1930s when there were actually a great number of fascist movements happening in the U.S. So you could levy, levy the same criticism against 1984 as as you could against uh, It Can't Happen Here, which is neither that prescient because they're both <laughs> reporting on things which are well known. It's well known that uh, Charles Lindbergh was a huge supporter of the Nazi party. He was one of the leaders of the German-American Bund. This is not unknown stuff that Sinclair Lewis was writing about, but his book is far more grounded than 1984 is and is far more relevant to the American context if we insist on teaching dystopian literature as a substitute for a political education, which I don't think we necessarily should. Absolutely not. Now, Cameron, what do I do if I don't want to reflect deeply on myself or the society in which I live? Can I still read 1984? <laughs> I yeah I it's like it's an it's an okay book it's not I don't know if you read any dystopian fiction they're all from this era they're all the same book yeah 1984 Fahrenheit 451 we we is a bit more engaging because it's the first one but again like we made the point in the first one it's unconscious man in dystopian society meets hot young woman hot young woman breaks him out of of this unconsciousness and then xyz happens i just like i don't see why this is assigned in high schools i don't like if you had to book pick any book there are so many other books you could pick yeah i mean like you pointed out last week and as you're pointing out in this episode if you want to look at this as a criticism of stalinism which is totally fine there's a lot to criticize there (laughs) um to put it mildly this is not the most incisive book on Stalinism. This is written in 1948 to 1949, three years out from Stalin's actual death. It is very easy to write a criticism of Stalin most of the way through Stalinism. It is more impressive to write a book like We, which critiques Stalinism without ever knowing that it would be a critique of Stalinism because Stalin wouldn't even come to power for several years at this point. But again, what I said earlier about this being a substitute for actual political education, you don't need to read fiction to read critiques of Stalin, which were contemporary. (laughs) In this very period, there are so many books which just regularly critique uh, the Soviet Union, not only from the right, but even from the left. Mm -hmm. Uh, The anarchist movement at this period in time was not super cool with the Soviet Union because of uh, the, the tendency towards centralized power of the Bolshevik Party and also because of the brutal crushing of the rebellion at Kronstadt, uh, which definitely was a period where a number of anarchists became completely disillusioned with the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And in fact, many major ones began to write books after that period. Uh, You may or may not know about the the anarchist organizer Emma Goldman, who went on to write My Experiences in Russia, which largely covers a number of her disappointments in seeing the USSR. You can read Alexander Berkman, a, a similar anarchist, same time, who wrote the books uh, My, Disillusionment, My Disillusionment in Russia and The Bolshevik Myth. Again, that's in the 1920s, fully 25 years or more before Orwell would even post this, 
or would even publish his book, or even if you want to read a contemporary of Orwell's, not even a contemporary, Grigory Maximoff would publish the book the, Gu- the Guillotine at Work, which is a critique not only of Stalinist society, but in fact, a critique of the secret police under Lenin, going even further than what is very common in these circles. There are contemporary and earlier nonfiction books, which are way more accurate to this period of critiquing Stalinism. And so there's just... 1984 is so uncritically accepted as like, oh, this is a book about political education. It's not. It's not relevant to the American <laughs> context, when it's, which it's often taught. It's not relevant to the, the context of the USSR, for which there are far more accurate books. There are far more accurate books to the American context of, of totalitarianism, too. And it's just so critical, uncritically accepted. And the thing that we often forget is that this is just a book by one guy, just like any other book. I could say that, I don't know. Uh, the Shrek movies have as much political validity as 1984, and that's true, because neither of them have any inherent validity. (laughs) They are merely works by a a single person or a group of people who are putting forth a worldview. This is a worldview which Orwell put forth, and it is not necessarily true, and somehow we've taken this as a completely uncritical political education, like just wholesale, this is like, this is just how it is, instead of just applying the basis modicum of critical thinking into just the actual political context which this happens in i'm I'm not mad at 1984 this is not orwell's fault this is not what he intended he was writing a pretty straightforward condemnation of stalinism which well not that surprising from the period he was writing it in certainly nothing to condemn about what he's doing but it's just it's so enthusiastically embraced in the public as if it's actual political education and i'm not a political specialist but there are infinitely superior ways to get a political education than reading 1984 listen to read any theory book whatever you are into if you are into liberal theory and i mean small l liberalism not like liberal conservative but liberalism in in like as compared to socialism read joseph nye junior read i don't know even Adam Smith, genuinely read Adam Smith. Read uh, John Locke. Read uh, who's the author of Common Sense? Thomas Paine. Uh, Thomas Paine. I guarantee you, they have more nuanced worldviews than you think. Both John, both John Locke and Thomas Paine called for what we would now recognize as a UBI. In fact, I believe it's Thomas Paine who called the concept of private property unnatural, and he used that unnaturalness of private property to argue for UBIs. There is so much more interesting content in traditional liberal literature than is commonly acknowledged. You should be reading it. It's interesting. If you're interested in, I don't know, socialist theory, there's obviously so many people. Don't read the Communist Manifesto. That's not that interesting. Um, Honestly, even a lot of Lenin's work is not that interesting. It's like mostly him arguing about grain production with his contemporaries. You really Lenin is like not that good of a writer or like, you know, he had a couple bangers. But aside from those, like most of them are not that good. Yeah. Just like even if you're reading, I don't know, socialist theory, Lenin and, and... Marx are not the most engaging writers. Das Kapital is a really good analysis of capitalism in the 19th century, but that's really all it is. There's just like there, there are podcasts which cover topics like this. Any given like political security con- podcast was a good I- introduction to small L liberalism. It just there's so many good resources for actual political education, and this is where my my background as an international relations major is coming out. Mm-hmm. That you can actually learn real historical context, real theory, real 
anything instead of just some dude being like, damn, wouldn't it be wild if two plus two equaled five and people believe that? <laughs> just, again, it's not Orwell's fault. We've, we've projected it so far beyond what Orwell ever could have intended that it's just... Also, he took that from, <sighs> uh, dare I say, Notes from the Underground. <laughs> yeah. Any number of Russian books. Yeah, there's like a, a Wikipedia page for that chapter, and I was annoyed to see how far down the list the Russian lit was on that. Uh, maybe it's because yeah. I'm totally biased, but I was like, are you freaking <laughs> kidding me? This guy, I mean, people were saying this hundreds of years before he was. <laughs> yeah. I just, I'm not saying this is not entirely irrelevant. I mean, I think fictional books about politics are totally fine and even can be engaging. Just not this one. Just not this one. I'm I'm straight up recommending it can't happen here because if it's a fictional book about a real politics, we have to gauge it not on how much do we like this concept, but how much does it relate to the actual real world? How grounded is this novel? And that's a different bar than you normally hold novels to because this is a different level of analysis you're bringing out of it. I mean, you read, there's a good line from a completely unrelated book, Reading Lolita in Tehran by Azar Nafisi, in which he says, basically, fiction is not a carbon copy of life, and we should not disrespect it by treating it as such. Don't use fiction as a political education. It is a reflection of what one person sees in, in, in life, and that's not necessarily false, and oftentimes they're telling many lies to get to the truth of something, but that is not a substitute for a coherent worldview articulated by more relevant writers. That's my rant. That's my rant. I... <laughs> Just read political theory or listen to political theory. I I wrote an entire series about it. I swear to God, I will re-record my 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 <laughs> my hour long series about political theory in international relations. Do it if it means people will actually learn real theory instead of reading like Lord of the Flies and being like, "Damn, humanity really do be like that, though." <laughs> but don't it <laughs> think about it. <laughs> Or honestly, you don't even have to read or learn political theory. You just stop telling me that I need to read 1984. One, I have. Uh, and two, no. Please make, please make it stop. Yeah. Also, if you're going to read, just read Brave New World. That's just literarily more interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and not to dump on Orwell, because Orwell's a good writer. Just this is not his best work. I think I'm annoyed by people telling me that 1984 has predicted like everything and I was like it's like a basic novel that talks about the way technology could advance <laughs> yeah. yeah okay if you take predictions in there yeah a lot of people also predicted similar things it's it's, it's not like he was seeing into the future yeah it's, it's a small rant off of the larger rant <laughs> <laughs> i've had several people make that point to me and i'm like that doesn't make it a good book or worth like you telling me about right <clears throat> yeah no it does not it just <laughs> do you want i will make an actual list of things you should read if you're interested in particular political philosophies anything you're interested in i guarantee i can find you something if you're interested in ayn rand uh, first of all, stop. I'm not going to tell you that you should stop being interested in objectivism, because if you're interested in that, I cannot dissuade you from that. But at least have enough self-respect to read a Robert Nozick instead of Ayn Rand. <laughs> Robert Nozick is bad shit insane, but at least he has a coherent <laughs> philosophy and has some, like, academic rigor in the way that he writes his book. Um, you might want to pick up Anarchy State and Utopia. Um, bad shit insane, but uh, that one book has more academic rigor than the entirety of Ayn Rand's life. So I, we can't do Ayn Rand on this bonus episode because it's that's, that's like 
It's far too much to pick apart. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be another 20-minute rant, but for me. Hot take from my end. There's nothing to pick apart from Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand is someone who uh, was just virulently against any any handout for anyone else, but then spent the uh, twilight years of her life surviving off of mm -hmm. the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. Uh, as uh, recipient to welfare, which I'm not going to condemn her for, because that is what happens sometimes in life. However, I will condemn her for being someone who can who committed her entire life towards condemning that in other people and then doing it herself. Mm -hmm. So it does sound like you're picking her apart, though. <laughs> <laughs> On this episode of writers, we writers and books that we dislike. <laughs> uh, next week i'm gonna fucking tear apart edith wharton i'm oh. coming for you the age of innocence or like the it's age over. of books i shouldn't have read <laughs> <laughs> sorry edith <laughs> i'm sorry edith you're a really good writer i just i didn't appreciate you in in 10th grade <laughs> okay well i'm gonna transition away from being angry about uh political realities into <laughs> asking you invasive questions it's the real reality <laughs> Initially, I wanted you to look at these to make sure you're okay with them all, and then you're like, it'll be more fun if we do this live, so um, <laughs> Matt has not seen any of these, so well, we're going to see uh, you know, we're gonna see if we cross any lines in the process. Isn't it more fun if you get to go back and comb through meticulously to edit out the things that I don't want in the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be good for you? Uh, it'd be really exciting for me, really fun. <laughs> I, I would really love dedicating multiple days of my week solely to podcast editing. Yes, sir. <laughs> On top of reading and preparing for this podcast. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Okay. <clears throat> Remember, I want as little context as possible. Only give me what is exactly necessary to answer this question, okay? <laughs> okay. Okay, perfect. Yep. If someone showed up at your apartment right now, what would you most dread having to explain to them about it? Oh, it would definitely be, no, sir, you really do have to wear a mask to come in here. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. I, I thought it was going to be like the whiskey bottles under the desk, which you don't have. I've just seen a picture of your desk, but something like theoretically like that. My desk is just messy. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. <clears throat> what was your most hated book of high school English? Ooh. Well, all right. I guess I'll confess this on my on the podcast. Um... I think I only I think I did spark notes all the way through high school English until I got to like AP lit senior <laughs> year and then I didn't dislike anything in that class because my teacher was phenomenal. So <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. Sorry, ninth through eleventh grade English teachers <laughs> who really valued my work. <laughs> in college, did you plan your essays in advance or did you do them the night before? Oh no, I was I was a horrific planner and I spent many nights in the library, not because I needed to, but because I'd like to. Fair enough. What childhood memory keeps you up at night? Uh, nothing nothing specific, just um, I have flashbacks to times and conversations when I horribly misread the room and, um, you know, made a poof. I can relate to that. Yep, yep. What is the thing that people are most surprised to learn about you? Ooh, <laughs> this is a hard one because as someone who has a really eclectic <laughs> personality, it could be you could name literally any single one of my hobbies and somebody <laughs> would be surprised by it. That's fair. It could I get be that. that I played baseball most of my life, that I did Krav Maga, uh, that I speak Russian, that I have a Russian literature podcast, that I devoted, uh, that I'm planning on devoting five to seven years of my life to a Russian literature PhD. You name it. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. What was your clothing style in high school? Um, American Eagle Prep Boy. Nice. What was your most unfortunate sartorial decision? Are you Googling sartorial? <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> Close. Oh, mm, ooh, that's a tough one. I only ask this because I went through not one, but multiple trench coat phases. I didn't have a lot of actually bad... Okay, so I was fortunate because my middle school had a dress code, and so it, it, that's the era when people do bad dressing. And so by high school, I was pretty much just like um, jeans and or shorts and then a normal shirt. So I don't, I don't think I, I don't think I beefed it too hard there. Now I feel bad that my last trench coat era was in my sophomore year of college. No, I don't hate that. I do occasionally. I'm like, <laughs> you know, I kind of do want to wear a trench coat outside. Yeah. Well, the thing was that I always wore it with like a, um, a tie and a button up shirt and like a full suit, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I didn't give off school shooter vibes. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, I did give off vibes that I'm, uh, I have no friends and I, my entire personality is dressing like I am from 60 years ago. Uh, that's my personality now. I think really getting into the uh, <laughs> into the dark academia style. So I, uh, you know, a lot of turtlenecks. Uh, what clubs in your life, in school or out of school, have you been a member of? I mean, high school lit mag. My guy loves the literary magazines. Uh, let's see. I was in school newspaper. What else? Oh, I was in a literary society in college. Did did a lot of stuff. I'm starting to understand how you have uh, railroaded your life into a literature PhD. Yeah, it makes more sense when you look at it holistically, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. What is the strangest food that you're willing to eat? Honestly, I would try just about anything. Okay. Pickled herring in a a fur coat? I'd try it. I have tried it. It's not that good. Yeah, yeah. I I went over to a friend's house, and his parents are um, uh, Slavic, and they came from the USSR, Mm -hmm. and they they lived in Israel for a while before they came to the US. Uh, But he made... uh, uh, pickled herring in a fur coat for all of us and i put a bunch of it on my plate because i aspired Fool. to like slavic things <laughs> yeah and then <clears throat> when i when i sat down uh, my friend's dad looked at him and said you know like see he likes it why don't you eat that and then i was stuck in the middle of an awkward conversation because first of all my friend was getting reamed by his dad for not liking this <laughs> disgusting food and secondarily after i took a bite of it i realized i also hated it yep, <laughs> so... yep. did you eat it all though <laughs> I, I ate some of it, then I spread the rest around my plate. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> but that's not the strangest food I've ever eaten in my life, so maybe mm. that's for a future episode. Okay. What is your favorite story about Russia? Any number of the nights <laughs> that, that we spent in Yaroslavl, probably. <laughs> they were some of the that's fair. wildest, most ramen-filled nights of my life. <laughs> My favorite memory from Yaroslavl is you ordering. <laughs> is you <laughs> is you ordering <laughs> pasta carbonara and a beer from a bar at like nine a.m. in the morning. It was a raspberry cider for which I'm more ashamed. I have all of those. I have mm-hmm. a photo of that. Mm-hmm. I have a photo of every time that Matt. Fun fact: I have a photo of every time Matt ever ordered pasta carbonara in Russia. It's surprisingly popular there. Yeah, surprisingly popular. I have those all, I have every single pasta carbonara documented on my phone, which is really creepy, but very <laughs> funny. I mean, it's su- surprisingly better than you'd think. <laughs> I really enjoy the series where you just like really begin getting into the modeling aspect mm-hmm. after I was like taking a bunch of pictures mm-hmm. and you're like really getting into like giving sultry eyes as mm-hmm. you try to slurp up bar, ro- uh, bar <laughs> carbonara. Hey, if you're going to do it, you may as well look good while you do it. That's fair. I respect that. <laughs> what is the oddest job you've had? I don't think I've had odd jobs. <laughs> All right, fair enough. I just really just a, just an intern boy. 
<laughs> All right, fair. What is the most memorable thing about your hometown? Ooh, so now I have two hometowns, I feel like. The one that I was born in and the one that I grew up in, and neither of them have anything at all that could be considered memorable, <laughs> except for the fact that they are painstakingly unmemorable. Shout out Lutz, Florida. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask her, are both your birth and raising place in Florida? Oh, no, I was born in Connecticut. Shout out Burlington, like, Connecticut. Really? There's also nothing there. That's a fun fact I've just learned about you. That's hey, fun. I like that. You know. Yeah, yeah. It allows right. me to have mm. the northern pretension everywhere I go. It's really fun. <laughs> I can't shake it. <laughs> okay, what's your biggest I've made a huge mistake a la Gob Bluth moment? Job? No, Gob. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't. I guess I don't have anything specific on my mind, but the... Like anything from my from my historical past, but uh, for for present moment, <laughs> things that I can't get off my mind is the uh, book report I agreed to do in five days on a large book relating quite heavily, as I found out, to Chernyshevsky's penis that I have to read now <laughs> in like three days and talk about as if I'm some sort of authority on it. So I've made a huge mistake <laughs> on that one. Oh, assigning myself to Chernyshevsky reading, I would say, is also a huge mistake. Oh, yeah, that was a big fuck up on our part. What is to be done? Well, not read the book. <laughs> Literally, as after we had that conversation, I walked out of my room and my housemate showed me that meme I referenced earlier and said, I, I can't remember if I showed this to you. And I had to explain to her that she's apparently on like <clears throat> brainwaves far above ours. Because <laughs> I was planning to ask her for that meme later on. Oh, that's really funny. There is like this part, though, where like one of the people establishes like a sewing commune. I'm only halfway through, so I don't know how it ends. But I was thinking, you know podcast commune think about it it'd be horribly <laughs> intolerable but it'd be great podcast commune everyone records but no one listens to each other's content yes sir <laughs> okay um what do you think the best guitar body is sultry <laughs> <laughs> i'll accept it for now yep i'm gonna accept that as a i'm gonna consider that a gibson body uh yeah. yeah yeah entry yeah what's your most embarrassing injury uh, <laughs> okay so I, I i broke my um right i think wait which one's not straight my right ring finger when i was playing flag football in middle school <laughs> and i had to get it cast together in such a way that it made me look like i was giving everyone a giant middle finger <laughs> which was really appropriate for middle school <laughs> Okay, what's the video game you spent the most time in? Unfortunately, Rocket League. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big car soccer boy, or at least I used to be. Yeah. But um, yeah, honorable mentions to every other game that I like, which is a lot. <laughs> I, I play a lot, so I span the, the genres. What is your go-to meal to cook? Uh, literally like anything over rice. <laughs> and when I'm feeling health conscious, cauliflower rice. Just slap that on a bowl of cauliflower rice. Oh, baby, you got yourself a meal. I respect that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what's the place you'd like to visit the most? Would like to or did like to? Would like to. Uh, I still want to go through more of Russia. I still feel bad that I only went to like a handful of cities. I just want to lounge on a train, chilling, vacationing. If we earn enough money, I will, as you previously discussed, start a whole podcast about traveling through Russia. Yeah, I would, I would do that. I'd make more content. That'd be fun. I think we could make a real show out of just going to like weird places in, in Slavic countries and just, first of all, uh, A, treating them with like any modicum of respect yes. uh, while we do it. Uh, that's unfortunately not that common. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, B, just traveling around un- unknown places. I-, I recently got a book about uh, a city in Ukraine, Slavutich, uh, which was the last atomic city built in Ukraine. Hmm. And each each quarter of the city is built in a different style of the various Soviet republics. Which would be cool. super cool to visit. Yeah, it would. yeah, like they have like the Moscow style, the Georgian style, the Armenian style, et cetera, et cetera. Super cool. Would love to visit. Yeah, literally any number of cities I would love to visit. Yeah, remember um, when we were in Russia? We had a week to travel, and one of <laughs> a lot of our classmates went to to Ukraine, which is fine. But one of them posted about a protest in the Maidan in Kiev. And uh, another person posted, that's why I didn't go choose to go to Ukraine, because it's so hostile to Russian speakers there. Mm-hmm. And then everyone in this entire program piled on this guy for being a Russian nationalist, despite not knowing that much about Russia. Wait, who said it? <laughs> yeah, it would be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is the screen name that you've used the most? Uh, probably Alora comes from um, Aziz Ansari's Master of None from the... Uh, season two where he gets really into pasta making which i was also really into for a little while but i didn't get to travel to italy unfortunately though <laughs> I, I i would like to just to you know i'd like to make some pasta i will never forget you drunkenly explaining to me in a random bar in russia why you're so obsessed with pasta carbonara which is that one time you were home alone and you made pasta mm-hmm. carbonara and it was mm-hmm. so good that you've never stopped eating it every chance you see it on any menu anywhere <laughs> I've never stopped craving it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. and That's powerful. I like that. The word is basically a nonsense word. I think it just means like then. It doesn't really mean yeah. anything significant, which is why I like it even more. It's just fun to say. <laughs> yeah. What is your weirdest D&D story? I think I may have already told that on the podcast when I played as an Orthodox priest and um, converted this entire uh, futurist prison into a uh, revolt, including all the guards. <laughs> I had an incredibly lucky run of like persuasive roles. Yeah. It's probably one of my, my prouder moments. Well, that is the 20 questions I had for you. Um, thank you for participating. <laughs> How does the hot seat feel? Very anxious, honestly. Especially since you prefaced <laughs> it where there was going to be lines crossed. <laughs> oh, well, I didn't know if there were or not. I don't know your lines gotcha. exactly. So I was going to like have you check, but... Uh, That's more fun. There was, I didn't think it was likely, I, other than, I don't know, maybe your most embarrassing injury. Mm-hmm. But what do you think I injured? <laughs> oh, no, I look, I have my most embarrassing injury was a water gun injury. So, um, you know, it might be might be sensitive. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't injured by being squirted. I was injured by being uh, beamed in the head by a water gun. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, American childhood. Uh, well, that has been all the content we've planned for this week. In the near future, you should stick around because we have some games we're going to play. Uh, we're going to test out some things that we are going to be using on some interviews. Yes, interviews that we have planned for the near, near future on both this podcast or on our YouTube, which you can find if you just look up uh, Tipsy Tolstoy on YouTube. Super easy to find. Uh, we're hoping to have more uh, interview content on there. We have a couple of people who we are talking to currently, so keep an eye out for that. And uh, we hope you enjoy. Yes. Uh, and again, thank you to all of our patrons who are currently supporting us. Uh, this month, we've got Jeff, Janice, and Madeline, Daniel, Darren, Gary, Daniel, Alex, and Roland. 
enough patrons for me to have to take a small breath in between all the names. As you know, podcasting isn't free, and as you probably also know by now, grad school does not pay very well. So if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to help us keep the show running, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash Tolstoy. The music used in this episode was Bella Chow by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find their content on bandcamp.toastedtomatoes.com or on YouTube under the same username. You'll hear from us again soon. Bella, Bella, Bella.